Good to see you all here. Thank you, and welcome to those that are joining us online as well. Uh, this sermon basically kind of kicked me around all week, so bear with me as we deal with one of the most difficult topics in Scripture, one of the most difficult topics uh, really in our human experience, which is where do we find hope in all suffering? If you look at the statistics on wars that have taken place and the millions upon millions of people that have been killed in conflict over the centuries, or you consider that right now between 250 and 350,000 children are currently serving as soldiers and all that that implies, and that every year there's another war or two or three wars, and every year there's another million or two million refugees, or you consider the statistics just on natural disasters that roughly 20,000 people die of starvation every year. You think of tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis that take lives by the tens and hundreds of thousands at a time. You consider that the annual average of natural disaster victims is 268 million people, people who have lost their homes, lost their jobs, lost their schools, lost property, been displaced. 268 million people every year affected by natural disaster. And then you have sickness. There's 9 to 10 million people die each year from preventable diseases, and those are just the ones we actually prevent. And then, of course, we have COVID and cancer and strokes and scoliosis, and every other sickness that afflicts us in various ways. And those numbers that I just mentioned don't even take into account the day-to-day suffering of bankruptcy and lost houses and violent attacks and robberies and bullying and schoolyards and everything else that each of us face any given year or any given month or any given hour in our life. There is no question, can we agree, that humanity has a problem with suffering. Has to be addressed. They say that we can be certain of two things in life, either death and taxes, and we wish it was only just death, but the harsher reality of the current human condition is not just being certain of a final death, but of seasons of suffering and sometimes great suffering along the way that leads to death. As the author Neil Gaiman phrased it, every hour of our life wounds us. The last hour kills us. What a cheerful guy to be around, right? (laughs) Now, suffering is not our favorite topic, obviously, or our favorite life situation. But one thing that is inescapable, and there's no use pretending that we do not suffer or that others do not. So in our search for true hope, in our search for an answer to the question of where do we find our hope and our peace and our comfort and our security... There is no satisfying answer to the meaning and purpose of our lives, no satisfying answer to that question of where our joy and our hope and our peace comes from if the answer does not address the problem of suffering head-on. Because any place or any hope that we can set our hearts on, if it doesn't deal with suffering, then it's not answering the question that we need answered. Anyone proposing an answer has to take an unflinching and an unblinking look into the heart of suffering 
and show us in that answer why it is that we need not despair and that we can have hope. Now, in 35 minutes on a Sunday morning, I am not going to be able to answer all of your questions on a biblical doctrine of suffering. Clearly not. That would be impossible. But what this morning is about is that starting a journey of discovery from within your own suffering, whatever it is that you're struggling and suffering under today, to start a journey of discovering the answers that God does have and the hope that does lie in our suffering. So this message is really about pointing. It's about pointing us towards a journey, a journey that if you start it, will continue to point you further towards answers that you will discover for yourself as you walk alongside others who share your experience. This message is about pointing you towards a journey of taking the first steps of discovering what God and the scriptures have to say that there is hope in our suffering. There are no pat answers to any of these questions. I can't answer them in 35 minutes. They may not all get answered in 35 years, but that doesn't mean there aren't answers, doesn't mean there isn't hope. And that's what today is about. So what does God say about the human condition of suffering? What does God say about where we can find hope in our illness, hope in poverty, hope in war, hope in disaster, hope in whatever it is that comes into our life in the name of suffering. And let me say that the first step that we take is a truth of the Bible that will almost certainly cause you initially to be angry. But if you are patient in your anger at this first step, and you keep asking God your questions, and if you don't let anger halt your journey at step number one, then the end result of that journey will be hope. And that first step that we have to take that quite often makes us angry, first and foremost, is that God is in control of our suffering. And he is actually the author of its purposes. The Apostle Paul writes for us a remarkable summary of God's intentions for suffering in his letter to the Church of Rome. He says in Romans 8, 20 to 21, he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope, in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is a weighty statement. The first foundation stone of our understanding of suffering and where our hope lies is right here. It's the cornerstone. It's the first step of our journey. If you get the cornerstone wrong when you're building, or if you take the first step of your journey in the wrong direction, the whole building ends up crooked, or you end up in the wrong place at the end of your destination. So we have to get this cornerstone, we have to get this first step right. Understand this. God and the Bible do not avoid the reality of our suffering, nor does God deny responsibility for it. The whole of Scripture faces the problem of our suffering head on. The Bible if you've read it lately, is a book about people who suffer. It's a book of suffering. 
And God himself takes responsibility for that suffering. And he claims authorship of its purposes. And he does not release any part of the outcome of suffering from his perfect will. And we can rebel against that idea to begin with. That can frustrate and anger us that God is in control of our suffering, that God is even the author of our suffering. But that's what Paul is saying here. If we unpack this and what Paul is saying, he's saying that creation was subjected In other words, somebody did something to creation against creation's will, not willingly. But because of him, God, who subjected creation to futility? It was God. Go back to Genesis. Go back to the beginning. Adam and Eve, and they sin. And because of their sin, God says, I'm going to curse the earth, and there's going to be thorns, and there's going to be thistles, and you're only going to eat of the earth out of pain, and there's going to be pain in childbirth. God cursed creation. His authorship, his idea. But he did it, he subjected it to futility in hope that creation itself would be set free from its bondage. And so Paul points here and he says, God has subjected creation to to futility, but he has a purpose behind it. He's the author of the purpose of creation's futility or of suffering, of weeds and death and pain and all of those things. He says it's because of hope there's a purpose in it. And God has all of suffering and all of things under his will in terms of what he's going to accomplish in that. And we have to work through that. And we could sketch through it in a few different examples as we go through, script, go through Scripture. You might think about Job and last May, I think it was around, I think it was the, sun, the first Sunday in May last year, if you want to go and check, we did six weeks on Job. But in Job, God's, it's, it's clear in the first two chapters of Job that God is absolutely in control of Job's suffering. I mean, here's a man who had everything. He was righteous. He was legally right standing before God. He was blessed by God. He had houses. He had flocks. He had children. He was happily married. He had everything the world could offer. There was no reason for him to suffer. And God, speaking to Satan points out Job. Of all the, Job's probably thinking, thanks God, you could have, like, pick somebody else. But God says, have you considered my servant Job? Right? This is when you don't want to be on God's mind, right? (laughs) And Satan says, well, does he love you for no other reason than he's totally blessed? Of course Job loves you. You've given him everything. Job doesn't really love you. He just loves you the stuff that you give him. And so God says, okay, Satan, here's a little bit of leash. Go and take some things away from him. And Satan Satan goes and takes. And then God gives a little more leash. And Satan goes and takes. And God gives a little more leash. And Satan takes. And Job loses his houses. And he loses his flocks. And he loses his family. And he loses his health. God, he loses everything except his life. And yet he worships God. Because Job didn't love God's stuff. Job loved God. That's another sermon for another point another time. But the point is, is that it was God who pointed out Job. It was God who gave Satan the leash. Satan may be the agent of suffering, but God is in control of our suffering. We can't ignore what the Bible teaches in that regard. Exodus 4.11 says, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf? or seen, or blind. Is it not I, the Lord? God doesn't step away from his role in our suffering. 
Amos 3.6 says, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? When disaster falls, God is there. Isaiah 45.7 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. Whether you look at it narratively, whether you look at it prophetically, whether you look at it legally, the Bible teaches God is in control of our suffering. Nothing happens to us that God is not sovereign over, that he is not the author of. Satan may be the agent of suffering, but God is in control of Satan. Jesus says the same thing to Peter if you want to come forward into the New Testament as if it would be any different. Luke 22. Remember, Peter's, Jesus says to Peter, he says, Simon, that was his name before Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. So there's Satan, the agent of suffering, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see, Jesus decides what Satan can do and what he can't do. Jesus even recognizes the same for himself in Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42. When he's praying in the garden, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. J- Jesus is very clear that it's God's will if he suffers and what the accomplishment of that suffering will be. Don't you think Peter was terrified to hear that Satan wanted to destroy him? Can you imagine that? Jesus said to you, Satan asked me for you. I'm terrified at that point. Then Jesus says, but I have interceded. Now I'm thrilled, right? Because Satan is on the leash. Do you think Jesus would want anyone's will other than the Father's will to be in charge of his suffering? Do you think Peter would want anybody to intercede for him except for Jesus? When we consider who is in control of our suffering, who else could we possibly want to be in control of our suffering and the author of its purposes other than God? That's where our hope lies, that God is in control of our suffering, that he is the author of its purposes. Because if it's anyone other than God, if anyone else is in control of suffering, if anyone else is the author of suffering, then we would have real reason to despair. A pastor writing about the death of his son expresses the comfort found in this first foundation stone that God is in control. He says it this way, I understand it sounds cruel to say that God willed my infant son's death. But believing that my son died against God's will is far worse. That would mean that God is not in control, that evil can ultimately win, and that my future is uncertain. Moreover, it would mean that my son's death was random and meaningless and without purpose. As someone who has endured adversity, my greatest comfort is knowing that God is sovereign. He has ordained all of my trials, and therefore my suffering has purpose. And so as angry as we might at first feel on the idea that God is responsible for and wills and has authorship of and is in control of all the suffering in our life and in the world, the reality is if God is not in control, we have no hope, we have only despair. 
Because neither Satan, nor other people, nor random chance have the last word on our suffering. God has the final word. And any other option would cause me to despair. If I want my suffering in anybody's hands, I want it in God's hands. We find hope in our suffering when we learn and we know that God is in control. Secondly, we find hope in our suffering when we learn that in his authorship of suffering's purposes, God will never waste our suffering. He is always accomplishing more than we can imagine while we suffer. And I could talk about 50 things in Scripture here, but I'm just going to talk about five big ones, okay? God is always redeeming our suffering when we suffer with God and alongside God with the knowledge of Him being present in our suffering. God can do at least these five big things. First of all, God is loosening our grip on the world and teaching us to cherish what is eternal. Remember back to Job. Satan thought that Job loved God for all of his stuff. But even though Satan took all of Job's stuff away, his family, his houses, his wealth, his flocks, his, his, his health, even the support of his wife, Job still worshipped God. We have our grasp today on so many things that prevent us from holding on to that which can truly save. And God, we talked about that a lot last week when we were talking about idols, remember? But God redeems our suffering when those idols let us down and we are in the midst of despair. That's our suffering. God redeems that suffering by using it to loosen our grasp on the world and our hope of our joy in the perishable things and instead place our hope in what does not perish. And understand this, Christianity is not ascetic, okay? We are not like hermits that live in the desert, and we do not enjoy suffering for suffering's sake. Okay, that's not Christianity. Christians never, ever suffer just for the sake of suffering or sacrifice as an end to itself. When Christians suffer with God, we always are in the process of giving up something in order to take hold of something that is better. There's a purpose in suffering, It's not just being a martyr for martyrdom's sake. It's not just suffering because it's somehow a virtue to suffer. No, we suffer with a purpose to give up something in order to take hold of something better. Job in no way felt, now that I'm suffering, I'm more holy. You know, now that I have all this trial in my my life, I'm a more virtuous person. Job never loved his suffering, but his suffering revealed where his hope truly lay, and it didn't lay in his flocks or in his houses or in his children or in his house. His hope laid in God, and he took firmer hold of God in his suffering. So suffering... God uses suffering to accelerate our recognition that everything we hold on to in this life is temporary and it's not a secure place for our final hope. Suffering enables us. Sometimes suffering is the only thing that enables us to finally let go of whatever it is we've been holding on to more tightly than God. And we learn in our suffering to cherish and treasure what is immortal and eternal rather than what is temporary. Pain, as C.S. Lewis describes it, insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone for a deaf world. 
So God is not wasting any suffering. At the very least, he's loosening our grasp of that which we cannot truly hope in. And God has used suffering to draw every kind of people to himself, whether it's gang members or soccer moms or bank robbers or bankers, teachers, drug addicts, doctors, sweet old ladies. God has used knife wounds, overdoses, car accidents, jail time, divorce, sickness, family tragedy, any and all kinds of suffering that has hit any person. He's used it all to draw people to himself knowing that it is far better for us to suffer and be saved by Christ than to remain happy and unsaved. I have no way of imagining what a lifetime of paralysis from the neck down is like. But Johnny Tata does. And her reflection on her life of suffering is this. God has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain the closer his embrace. So the first thing we see in terms of God not wasting our suffering is that he uses it to draw people to himself and to loosen our grasp on the world. Secondly, God uses our suffering to train us in compassion and deepen relationships with others. The Bible makes clear that God is not wasting our suffering when we suffer. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So secondly, God, in your suffering, is using it to deepen your compassion and your relationship with others who suffer likewise. If we suffer with God alongside us, he will use the experience of our suffering as a means of comforting others who also suffer. And as we are comforted, meaning as we find our hope and our joy and our security and our peace in the midst of our suffering with God, we can then pass that comfort on to others and guide them into comfort. And notice that it says we can comfort them in any trouble. Your suffering will not be exactly like everyone else's suffering. Everyone else's suffering will be a little bit different, but that does not disqualify you from helping them. If you have received comfort from God, that qualifies you to comfort others in any suffering that they may be experiencing. It's certainly good to share similarities and experience with those you comfort, but it's not a requirement. If you've suffered through sickness then you have found hope in God in sickness, then you can at the same time comfort people who are struggling in financial debt. Don't think, well, I've never experienced that, so I can't help you. No, no, no. God says, no, I've comforted you. You found hope in your suffering. You can now help these people in any of their suffering. You can guide people in the hope that you've found. David Powelson writes during his own struggle with cancer, Our culture is terrified of facing death. It's obsessed with medicine. It idolizes youth, health, and energy. It tries to hide any signs of weakness or imperfection. You will be a huge blessing to others by living openly, believingly, and lovingly within your weakness and suffering. Paradoxically, moving out into relationship when you are hurting and weak will actually strengthen others. So the Bible says... God is using suffering to loosen your grasp on the immortal, to hold on to the immortal. God is not wasting your suffering because he's using your suffering to become a comfort to others and to grow your compassion. Thirdly, 
God uses your suffering so that you may be objects of mercy yourselves and a testimony of love. One thing we often overlook when we think about our suffering is that it is about us. And your suffering may not actually be about you. We often overlook when we think about our suffering that we are on the receiving end of compassion that Paul describes in the 2 Corinthians passage I just mentioned above. He says, so that we can be a comfort, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. In order for that verse to work, there has to be other people to receive comfort. And we forget often in our suffering that we are meant to be the recipients of mercy ourselves and a testimony of the love of God. John 13, 35 says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So don't miss this purpose in your suffering, the fact that your suffering may not be to comfort others or to show mercy to others, but your suffering may be to be the object of mercy and to receive comfort from others. And we have a lot to learn in that because most of us naturally hate the idea of being dependent on others or of being helpless to earn and justify the mercy we receive. And yet God says, I'm going to use this suffering in your life to make your self-reliance a little more obvious. This suffering that you're going through is going to be a picture of your need for mercy and compassion and your inability to do anything to earn it or pay it back, and yet you're still going to receive it. And what is that a picture of? That's a picture of our spiritual need for God. We are in need of his mercy and compassion and we have no way to earn it and no way to pay it back. And God says, you're going to receive that mercy and grace from me anyway. And I'm going to put that on display as you love one another. As you show mercy and compassion to those who are struggling and suffering who can never pay it back, the world will look on and see what love is this. And how you treat each other in your suffering people will see the love of God. Fourthly, God is not wasting your suffering, but he's using it to build perseverance. In Romans 5, 3, Paul reminds us, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. For most of us, suffering is a marathon. It's rarely instant or short-lived. If suffering was instant or short-lived, we wouldn't call it suffering. By its very definition and nature, suffering is a long road that we are on, and through suffering, God is teaching perseverance. But the question in that verse remains, perseverance in what? What is it that God is teaching us perseverance in in our suffering? Perseverance just in bearing suffering? No, because remember, the Christian life is not ascetic. We don't suffer just for the sake of suffering. So it's not perseverance in suffering. God is teaching us perseverance in hope and faith, and trust, perseverance in joy. Just about anyone is capable of being happy and hopeful in short bursts. Give anyone enough money, or a great vacation, or a fantastic family, or an amazing marriage, or a terrific job. Anybody can persevere in joy and happiness in those circumstances. What God is teaching us to persevere in in suffering is joy when our circumstances abandon us. God is teaching us in in suffering perseverance in faith and hope and trust and joy and security in him. Because when the vacation ends or the money runs out or the spouse runs out or our health runs out, our joy and our faith 
and our security is tested, and God says, in that suffering, I am going to teach you perseverance in joy and in faith and in hope, so that they do not fail when suffering comes. If we suffer with God, we learn perseverance in true joy, and we learn perseverance in God-centered hope. Fifthly, and this is the last example that I will give of how God does not waste our suffering, but he joins us in it and uses it, is that he, God uses our suffering to equip and mature us for what is to come, greater works and greater glory. And instead of Job, I'll switch over to Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph. This is a story of suffering and redemption. And if you really want to learn how God uses suffering in all kinds of different ways for equipping us, then there's hardly a better account than Joseph starting in Genesis 37. And most of you know the Joseph story. This is a favored son living a favored life in his family, except that his brothers hate him. And then they throw him in a pit to kill him. And then they sell him into slavery. And then he gets out of the pit into slavery only to be falsely accused by his slave master's wife. And then he's thrown into another pit. He's thrown into prison. And then he's forgotten about for several years there. And then he's released from prison and he's raised up in order to rule Egypt and rescue the nation. And as you go through this story of suffering of Joseph, and there's a series on Joseph. If you go to the website and search for the series on Joseph, you'll find that too. But as you go through the suffering of Joseph, every step of the way we see that God is refining and equipping Joseph for what is to come. Working for his father and managing his brothers and then managing Potiphar's household and fields, God is not wasting any of these experiences. Joseph probably learned the Egyptian language as a slave and in prison, and he understood how to act in front of Egyptian officials as he's serving Potiphar's guests, and he learned how to practice and exercise his faith in God and trusting God would provide, even in the pit, even in slavery, even in prison. And Joseph trusted God in the small things. He found favor with the prison guard. He found favor with Potiphar, and he was trusted with God in small tasks to prepare for the large task ahead which would be ultimately to save Egypt and the surrounding nations from a seven-year famine. God used every step of Joseph's suffering to equip Joseph for greater things and greater glory and greater works in his kingdom. So the season of our life might seem like a struggle now. It may seem like your life is much smaller than what you expected or hoped it to be. Maybe you don't have the job you wanted. Maybe you're not in the city you hoped to be in. Or you're having the impact you expected. But God is not wasting this season in your life. He has you in the whatever season you are in right now for many good reasons to equip you. God is trustworthy to prepare you for what is to come. 1 Peter 1.67 says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying you're getting tested right now by these little trials which are nothing compared to how it is equipping you to glorify God in the days to come. Those are five ways. And I could, again, as I said, I could do 20. I could do 50 ways in which we recognize that God is just not coldly, you know, sitting up in heaven, you know, being the architect of our suffering in a way that somehow serves his purpose but keeps us at arm's length. No, God is joining into our suffering. Make sure that not even one 
moment of our suffering is wasted, but that our suffering is accomplishing more purposes at the same time than we could often imagine. John Piper has one of my favorite quotes. God is never just doing one thing. He's always doing a thousand things at the same time. And we never know all the hundreds. Sometimes God gives us a little glimpse of just three or four things that he's doing in the midst of our suffering. And in reality, he's doing those three or four things and 300 other things that we can't even imagine. We find hope in our suffering when we realize that God will never waste any of it because he's absolutely in control of it. And finally, we find hope in our suffering because we know that God has the final answer and the end of suffering in Christ. All of this would be pointless if God did not provide through suffering an ultimate end of all suffering. And God, we learn in Scripture, has bound up his final rescue for us in the mystery of himself entering into our suffering through Jesus, his Son. Whatever mystery or purpose suffering has, we know that God cares about suffering enough and it is important enough that he himself joined us in suffering, the ultimate suffering, through his Son. Philippians 2, 5-8 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, God incarnate, came down and joined us to suffer and in suffering redeem us. Jesus' death and resurrection transforms our final enemy, death, from defeat into victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 24-26 says this, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Because that's that's what's come into the world, right? All this death stuff. Whether it's thorns or toil or pain in childbirth or sickness or illness or natural disaster, the curse that has come upon the world are all elements of death. And there is a final death, which is what we thought would be our final suffering. But God entered into our suffering and through suffering defeated death to make our last enemy now not a defeat but a victory. Jesus is the hope in which creation was subjected to in futility. Remember, God, like, like Paul summarized it. He said, he who subjected it to futility in hope. What was the hope? The hope was not just that we could suffer a whole bunch and become better people for it. The hope is that Christ would enter into our suffering, that God would enter into our suffering, and that as Jesus was rebuked and rejected and rebelled against by his people, and as Jesus went to the cross and ultimately hung there and died for our sin and died, he could defeat death and come out of death with the gates of Hades in his hands. And he could be resurrected, first fruits of the new creation, 
the first fruits of the resurrected body that we will inherit, that, that we have our ultimate hope in our suffering in is that Jesus has gone through all the suffering that we're going to go through and has come out victorious. If we put our hope in him, we share in that glory. The greatest mystery of suffering is that God used suffering to accomplish his final and ultimate redeeming and healing work by coming himself to suffer and die so that any who put their hope and trust in him will not experience death as defeat, but death as victory. And so thirdly, we find our hope in suffering when we recognize that God entered into it himself. He understands it, and he defeated it. There is purpose in your suffering only if God is in control of it. And as you open yourself up to those purposes that God has, which we looked at a few of them, God will not waste your suffering. Rather, because he is the author of it and has all of its purposes under his sovereignty and control, he will redeem your suffering. He will use every moment of it for your good and for the good of others, both present day and eternal purposes. Suffering may seem to us in many ways a mystery, but God has joined us in our suffering. He's not exempted himself from it. In fact, he transformed suffering to the point of death into the means by which suffering would be forever defeated. If you're a Christian, Mark Dever said this statement and it struck me. I read it, I think around Tuesday. Mark Dever said, if you are a Christian, the time you have now is your last opportunity to suffer. The chance you have now to suffer is your last chance if you're a Christian. Because in a few short years, you will be in a place beyond suffering, beyond brokenness, and beyond sin. Because suffering has no purpose once it brings us home. Once it refines us, once it puts our hope in Christ, once it defeats death, we are very shortly, in a few short years, entering a place where there'll be no more suffering because suffering's purpose will have ended. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So suffering will end. Its purposes will be finished. What are the ends of those purposes? When suffering brings us home, glorified in the image of Christ. So use your suffering to loosen your grasp on this world. Use your suffering to put your hope in God. To suffer with God, to be transformed and let His purposes in your suffering accomplish their purpose in your life and put your hope in the reality and in the God, in a God who did not suffer in some Mount Olympus somewhere but who came down and joined us in our suffering, even to suffer at our own hands in order to rescue us ultimately from our suffering. If you've been searching for hope in your suffering, whatever it is you're going through, whether it's illness or grief or loss or just stress or whatever it is, if you've been looking for hope and you've been wondering, where can I put my hope? What is a place that has answers that do not ignore the reality of my suffering? I earnestly ask you to consider putting your hope in God because his scripture, his word to us, and his actions in our suffering and his actions in Christ Jesus tackle the reality of our suffering head on. Start this journey, even if it's your very first step. 
Start this journey of exploring what God is doing and can do in your suffering. God will not disappoint. He's in control. He will not waste it. There is joy. There is peace. There is security possible in your suffering because of the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I am amazed as I go through Scripture that you do not blink or try to stay at arm's length or try to divert responsibility for our suffering. As the world turns to you and says, look at the suffering, look at the war, look at the evil, look at the pain. How can you be a good God with all of this? You know, you can't be responsible for this and be good. And you step in and say, I am. I'm responsible. And I'm good. I'm doing things in your suffering you cannot imagine. And Father, where else can our hope lie except in that reality? If Satan is in charge of my suffering, I despair. If suffering is just the random actions of a universe that's wound up and let go, then the death of my child or my cancer has no more meaning than an asteroid crashing into Jupiter. It's purposeless. But God, if you are the author of my suffering, if you are in control of my suffering, then I have hope because it has purpose and you are joining me in it and you are doing things I cannot imagine and you have used it ultimately to rescue me. So Father, I pray that we would embrace our suffering as Christians. As Christians, we want to learn what we need to learn in suffering. Father, this is, this is deep, deep water. But we enter it with the guidance of your Holy Spirit, the arm and the hand, arms of your Son around us, to guide us through these things, to give us our hope in you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.